welcome to the Every Woman Book Club. I'm Rebecca Lewis and I'll be your host for this series, introducing you to a fresh new bookshelf packed with inspirational, thought-provoking and challenging new titles. In each podcast, I'll be unravelling the details with our authors, exploring their themes and how they relate to women in the workplace and the wider world. We'll also be giving you a chance to put your own questions to each of our authors in live Q&As streamed regularly on the Every Woman Network. So keep an eye on everywoman.com slash book club for invitations to this exclusive content. My guest today is Sophie Hanna, the best-selling crime novelist and award-winning poet chosen by Agatha Christie's family to continue the Hercule Poirot canon. In a departure from her normal prose, she's written a book about happiness. In Happiness, a Mystery and 66 Attempts to Solve It, she examines the case files, from ancient texts by Aristotle to late-night sessions with American life coaches, all in an attempt to answer the questions, what is happiness and how do we achieve it? So, Sophie, you embarked on this journey of trying to solve the mystery of happiness after you realised that though you were pretty happy with your life, you were wondering if your happiness was actually causing you some problems. Tell us about that. So, yeah, I am actually very good at being happy unless there is a specific cause of temporary misery or frustration or anger, my natural default setting is incredibly happy. And I'm also very good at thinking, you know, thinking about whatever happens in a way that is designed to enable me to be happy again as soon as possible, which is great. It means I have an incredibly uh, jolly experience of life. But the problem is, quite often when there are situations which I might be feeling quite happy about, I can think to myself, maybe the fact that I can feel happy about this situation is not a good thing. And so in particular, and this is what starts off, you know, chapter one of the book about happiness is basically me booking a session with a life coach, because I'm feeling as though I'm happy about things that maybe I shouldn't be. And so maybe my ability to be happy, although it's great, it might actually lead to a situation where I'm allowing certain things in my life to continue, which are, which maybe I should be thinking of as a problem that I ought to change. The main source of your problem was your workload. And you actually likened your to-do list to like this tyrannical bully figure in your life. Um, is constant busyness and this almost pressure, I think, to say yes to everything, every opportunity that comes along. Is that one of the biggest blockers to happiness, do you think? Well, so my whole approach to life is that, you know, busyness is actually not a real thing. Busyness is a is a mental concept. And yes, my problem was that I was thinking of myself as really busy. But for as long as we think of ourselves as really busy, we're not going to realize that actually we have 24 hours in every day, just like everybody else. And we have choices about what tasks we want to do and what activities we want to do and what activities we don't want to do. For example, I have various activities I love doing. Some of them are work-related, some of them are leisure, some of them are family and friends, you know, all, all kinds of different activities. If I think of myself as, you know, oh, I'm just so busy, then that's defining something as a problem that maybe needn't be. So instead I can think, 
you know, I'm going to do this in this hour and that in that hour. And the fact is that like, however much we think we'd like to do, we can't, we can't create more hours in a day than exist. So, so in a way, the first step, and this is what I came to learn through talking to this life coach, and I, I came to realize that actually the problem is not busyness or too much work. The problem is the way we think about what we choose to do. So if I was feeling busy and feeling that I was working too hard, which I definitely was, I definitely did feel that my work was stalking me and oppressing me and had this role of like being a tyrant in my life. The first step was to realize that none of that was true. Like that was just how I was thinking about it and defining it. The minute I dropped those thoughts and realized that that was just a story I was telling myself, then I was left with none of the drama that I'd created by defining things in that way. I realized that the problem was that I was wanting to do too many things at too high a level. And if I continued to want to and try to do all those things at that high level, then that was going to continue to be impossible. And that was going to generate thoughts of like, this isn't working. And that's where that idea of busyness and working too hard comes from. So what I actually realized was I needed to constrain a bit. Constrain is a very good word for it, actually. And what happened then when you came out of that life coach session is that you started trying to piece together happiness based on all of, you know, everything that the ancient philosophers have written. And um, one thing that they all had in common um, was that they're all male, the big boys, as you call them. So you looked into Aristotle, Kant, Plato, the Dalai Lama. I, I wondered whether you're conscious that in writing this book and philosophizing about happiness from a female perspective, you were sort of addressing a, a fairly big gender imbalance. Well, I mean, so first of all, it's probably quite important to to mention at this point that the way I approached my my book about happiness, when I decided I wanted to write one, I decided to approach it as an investigation. So the book is called Happiness, A Mystery. And in it, I basically am my own self-appointed detective and I set out to solve the mystery of happiness. So the big boys... All these famous philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Schopenhauer, Kant, you know, all these, these important men and their theories of happiness, um, I regarded their teachings on happiness as absolutely essential for me to study because that was like what I would call and what I did call in the book uh, the case file so far. Then I realized that actually, you know, they were all – it was really fascinating to read all their takes on happiness – but none of them quite sort of chimed in with or, or sort of had so profound an effect on me as this one session with an American life coach called Catherine. Uh, so I actually say in the book, like, it's a bit weird, but Plato and Aristotle don't seem to be quite as sharp on the subject of happiness as Catherine, the American life coach. So then the next stage of my investigation was looking at more contemporary thinkers on the subject of happiness. Now, by this point, I had become very, very obsessed with coaching. I'd had lots of coaching. I listened to many, many coaching podcasts and read books by predominantly female American life coaches. And so that next section of the investigation that I undertook was taking as seriously as I'd taken the philosophers, the male philosophers. I had a, a chapter where I took 
exactly as seriously the theories being um, discussed and taught right now in the contemporary world by a series of very well-known female, mainly American life coaches. Um, When I was writing the book, I thought this is hilarious because (laughs) there's lots of books being written about happiness, but probably none that contain lots of sort of serious Greek and Roman philosophers, as well as the full range of thinking from the contemporary American life coaching world. And I just treated them all exactly equally. So um, I guess I, I noticed the gender imbalance in the sense that obviously the the sort of what most people would, would regard as like the people who have studied happiness seriously and the philosophers of happiness, the famous ones tend to be men. But But certainly now there's as many women, if not more women than men, um, talking about how we can feel better. That kind of leads on to my next point, which is about careers um, and the idea that our careers are something that we should derive happiness from is, I guess, relatively new. So our grandparents, well, my grandparents certainly were sort of simply happy to pick up their paycheck, whereas we're supposed to be fulfilled by our work um, and to find joy in it, be defined by it even. What are your thoughts on that? And do you feel any pressure? Um, You know, you have this glittering career, lots of awards. Do you feel any pressure around all of that to find happiness in it? So for me, work is an area of my life where I've always had like massive fulfillment. And it's probably the area of my life where I've had the most power to create the working life that I want to for myself. Um, now, in that sense, I've been lucky because I had this passion for writing and I just pursued it. So all the way through school, all the way through college, I pursued my writing with no idea at all that it would end up being what I did for a living. It was just my hobby, but it was the only thing I was ever really interested in pursuing in that sort of le- with that level of passion. You know, most of us spend so much of our time working. And so if we don't get any kind of joy from it or any kind of fulfillment from it, um, that's not a situation that I would like to have in my life. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to ditch your day job and go and pursue some wild and wacky dream. You know, most people imagine that we need to change our circumstances, like our job or our boss or our husband or whatever, in order to feel better. It's our thoughts always, without exception, it's our thoughts that create our feelings. And our feelings create everything else in our life. So our feelings create our actions, all our behavior, and our behavior creates our results that we get in our life. Like if you said to somebody who'd had a bad day at work, you say, so, you know, what's the matter? How are you feeling? They say, well, I'm feeling really depressed. And you say, okay, why? Most people would say, because my job is boring and my boss doesn't value me enough. And they would make the court, they would imagine that the cause of their feelings is some external circumstance in their life, their job or the way someone else has behaved. But what's always true is that it's not the circumstance, it's our thoughts about the circumstance that makes us feel whatever we're feeling. So when I feel angry, It's not because someone else has said something rude. It's because of what I've made that mean in my mind. It's those changes of thought which lead to different and better feelings, which power the right actions that you need to create the result you want. 
like I think you're right, some people are fulfilled by their work and some aren't. But when I meet people who aren't, I always say to them, like, obviously, you can leave your day job, you can change your job, you can change your circumstances. But given that at the moment you are in this job, how might you be able to think differently about it so that you could create a better experience for yourself, where you feel happier? Like, if instead of thinking, oh, this job is so boring, if you would think instead about like how it might, you know, what can I find in this job that I'm doing now that I could be interested in or be excited by? And then initially your feeling would be curiosity. That thought might make you feel curious. And then the action that that curiosity would generate would be, you know, really thinking in a new way about your job. Like how could I make it more interesting for myself, which would create a completely different result in terms of the experience you have at work. It's 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 a brilliant concept, um, and it's it's very logical. But there are points in the book where I sense that you struggle with it a little bit as well. Act, how you actually implement that in your life, and how you sort of make that mindset switch permanently. For example, when you're discussing Charles, the man who's trying to murder your dog, you're <laughs> saying to your life coach, "How can I possibly think anything about this guy?" other than that he's a totally awful human being. So how, how, how have you actually made this, you said that you, you, you implemented this in your life and every thought now, how have you made that switch? And by the way, is Charles still trying to kill your dog? <laughs> uh, Charles hasn't tried to kill my dog for a while, uh, which oh, is good. great. Um, partly because I've just made it impossible for him to do so. When he comes to the house, I hide all the keys so he can't <laughs> open the front door in the hope of letting the dog escape and get run over in the street. Um, yeah, so a lot of the book is about me sort of trying out my own theories about happiness and absolutely struggling with various bits along the way. I think the way I solved the, you know, the struggles in the end was that I realized that sometimes I was trying to use the idea that our thoughts create our feelings, which creates everything else. I was kind of trying to use that idea against myself. If you find yourself thinking, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm not thinking the right thoughts that create happiness. And you're sort of judging yourself for, for thinking um, not in the optimal way, then, then you're using this good tool that you could use for your benefit. You're using it against yourself. So immediately, as soon as there's any sort of negative self-judgment, you can just stop doing that. You can just think like the purpose of, you know, the, the only reason it's so brilliant when you realize that our thoughts create our feelings is because we can use that to make ourselves feel better. So let's say you have a thought about, let's say I had a thought about Charles, which is, you know, Charles is an absolute git and that thought was making me feel angry. If I'm quite happy being angry with Charles, then there's no need to change anything. So there's no need for me to try really hard to think, Charles is lovely, really. He's just a bit misunderstood instead. Because that was what I was doing at first. I was like, I should just be having sweetness and light thoughts all the time to create sweetness and light feelings. And then I thought, no, I don't want to have only lovely thoughts. I want to be able to be angry with someone who tries to kill my dog. I want to be able to think, I never want to see that person again if I choose to think that. And I, like, and the same with all negative feelings. Like I want to be able to choose to feel sad 
if I think something very sad has happened. Like sometimes I'm much happier thinking that's awful and feeling sad rather than trying to like brainwash myself into thinking that's marvelous so that I can feel happy about something that I actually don't think is marvelous. We've all acquired this idea from the ether that we should be having lovely positive thoughts and lovely positive experiences Mm. all the time. And that's not the truth of the human experience. The human experience is, if you're lucky, 70-30 weighted in favor of happiness. And for a lot of people, it's not even that. Maybe the ideal life the ideal human life contains a mixture of all the emotions, positive and negative. Well, this this tension um, between how you actually feel and how you think you should feel was something that came up in one of your life coach sessions when you were discussing one of your female friendships, um, which seemed to be a friendship that had actually caused you quite a lot of pain, actually. And Um, I got the impression that the life coach was encouraging you to continue to think positively about this friend and and just love this friend regardless of of how she was treating you. And I I, I get the impression that didn't sit very well with you. So is that another example of how you can just sit comfortably with something that is a negative thought? Yeah, totally. So um, one of the things I struggled with when I was... um, in my investigation into happiness is that we should have unconditional love for everyone, all of the human beings. And I don't agree that we should have unconditional love for everyone if we define unconditional love as what I was defining it as. And I was defining unconditional love as the kind of love I have like for my children. And I couldn't understand why if there was some stranger who was like behaving abusively towards me and putting bricks through my window, I didn't understand why I should love that person unconditionally in the way that I love my kids. That made no sense to me. But I sort of did a lot of work on that. And I realized that unconditional love is not like I absolutely adore this person and want to hang out with them and cuddle them and marry them. It's not that. It's more like I respect their humanity. I recognize that they're a valuable human being in the world just as I am. They're not like worse or of less value than me. Now, if unconditional love means that, then I absolutely do and can feel it for everybody. But it doesn't mean I have to continue with a friendship that I don't want to continue with. So this is actually work that I've been doing really recently, even since I finished the book. it, It took me a long time to realize that whenever I want to, and in any situation where I feel it would make me happier, I can just think, I don't want to spend time with that person anymore. I don't want to pursue an active friendship with that person anymore. And and that's absolutely fine. And, you know, one has every right to think that. You don't have to justify it. You know, we don't have to spend our time and mental and emotional energy on people that we don't want to spend it on. So like, it's taken me decades to get to the point where I've been able to happily give myself permission to choose what and who I want to include in my life and not feel guilty about those occasions where I don't want somebody to be in my life. Let's talk about cancellations. (laughs) This was a real eureka moment for me because I've, I've absolutely always felt that little stab of joy at a last minute cancellation, but never quite put it into words until I read it in your book. So tell me about your theory about how cancellations equal happiness. 
in the book, you know, there's a lot about what the true secret to happiness is. Um, and in fact, there is a solution at the end of the book. I do put forward what I think is the best answer to the question of what is happiness. Um, and I, I, I love my theory. I prefer it to the theories of all the big boys. Uh, and there's a <laughs> twist as well. But along the way, I also like to point out sort of small, local, regional things. And one of them is cancellations. Now, someone was saying, oh, well, maybe I'll just cancel. I was like, no, no, no. It doesn't work if you cancel a thing because then you might have to contend with some cancellation guilt drama. So the kind of cancellations that create genuine <laughs> happiness are when you were totally going to do the thing and the other party cancels. And whether it's a social thing, a professional thing, whatever it is, if you are over the age of, a, a, let's say, 30, you are thrilled beyond anything imaginable. You are just <laughs> delighted if anything you arrange is cancelled. And I find this fascinating, right? Because why why do we all, us, us over 30-year-old grown-ups, why do we constantly arrange to do things that we'd be delighted if they were cancelled? Like, in a way, it makes no sense. And what I notice is the younger generation don't want it because I've written a poem about cancellations and how amazing they are based on um, when it first happened to me. I was just like so delighted. And when I go into schools and read this poem to teenagers, they don't get it. They're like, what? Well, when we arrange stuff, we want it to happen. And I, I literally say to group after group of teenagers, like, trust me, when you're 30 <laughs> and for the rest of your life, you will secretly hope that nothing you arrange actually happens and that the other person cancels so that you get some amazing free time that you didn't think you were going to have. And it's kind of weird. Like even, even I who wrote the poem identifying this phenomenon, I still suffer from it. And I don't, I don't understand why I don't just stop arranging to do things that I don't want to do. It's very weird. Well, because if you stopped arranging things, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have them cancelled and therefore experience the joy of the cancellation. That is very true. <laughs> but one of the, the key models for happiness that you put forward is is one that you stole from a character of a novel that you're yet to write, so all very postmodern of you. It's the 65 days of special purpose, where you set a purpose each day, so something to achieve, something to invent, um, decide something, admit something. Why is that the key to happiness? Sell it to us as, as your big idea. It started as an idea, as part of a novel I was going to write. I'm still going to write the novel, but I'm not actually going to use the 65 days in it because I sort of feel now that I've put it in my book, in my happiness book, I don't feel I can convincingly pretend that my character in my novel has invented <laughs> it because I've already revealed. So it's all very complicated. So I have to invent something else to fulfill my role in the novel. Um, but basically the 65 days, the reason I thought it might be a brilliant way towards solving the mystery of happiness is because there's nothing theoretical about it. There's nothing, there's no like big idea, like the way this leads to happiness is. There's nothing like that. It's just, here are some instructions to follow. Take 65 days out of any given year. Here are the 65 special purposes for each of those days. So as you said, you know, invent something, promise something, find something, teach something that each one is different and just do the purpose of that day in some way 
on 65 days of the year and just see how you feel at the end of it. And what I found was that actually that was one of the most powerful things. Just thinking of that some days would have a special purpose just immediately makes you feel better and happier, not only on those days, but also on the other days when, when you haven't got a special purpose. It just, I think it's something about sort of increasing your deliberate awareness and focus so that you're not living in any kind of default setting mode, you're actually creating your, or at least one element of your day in a very deliberate way. And once you've started, it becomes irresistible and you just want to do that with the whole of your life. And as you say, you do have a eureka moment at the end of the book where you solve the mystery of happiness. Um, We don't want to give away any spoilers, but can you give us a clue without giving too much away And can you tell us, do you feel happier for having unlocked that mystery? Yes, a hundred percent. Like, I genuinely believe that the solution I arrived at is the best solution I could possibly arrive at. And it, it works so well for me. It's hard to say without, without giving, giving something away, but yeah, it has made a huge difference to me developing new coaching concepts. I'm constantly coaching myself and discovering that solution to happiness in such an unexpected way. Here's what I can reveal. It's in the, in the introduction to the happiness book, there is actually a significant and glaring clue to what the eventual solution is that I find and offer to the reader. So um, if you read the introduction, which you can easily find in any sample you might download from Amazon, because you can order a sample to be sent to your Kindle, read the introduction. There's a big clue there. Mm. Now that you've said that, I feel like I need to read the introduction again, because I think I missed that. Well, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little clue now. It's to do with the idea that anyone who loves mystery fiction, like I do, the actual mystery mm. is almost more enjoyable than the moment at the end where the detective said, let me tell you who did it and why. It was Fred, and it's because he was a bit cross about something. <laughs> and you kind of think, okay, I'm glad I know that, but I was more excited before those possibilities were narrowed down and I was given a definite answer. So that's a big, big clue. (laughs) That is a very good clue. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. 